This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabot. Should Britain be planning for a possible intervention in Syria, British troops are photographed openly operating in a former militant stronghold in Somalia, but what are they doing? And on the eve of the opening of the London Olympics, we look at the importance of sport to the military. It promotes teamwork, courage and fitness and so on, all of which we require on the battlefield. numbers of Syrian reinforcements are reported to be moving towards the second city, Aleppo, as part of efforts to crush the rebels there. The regime of President Assad is likely to use maximum force to retake the city. This week, a report from the Royal United Services Institute suggested that external intervention in Syria is becoming increasingly likely because of the effect the violence is having on neighbouring countries. Colonel Richard Kemp, a former commander of British forces in Afghanistan, contributed to this report. He says Britain should be, and probably is, planning for potential intervention. And the kind of thing they're going to be looking at, I would think, is contribution to an air campaign, potentially. Potentially contribution of special forces supporting the rebels on the ground with advisory teams. Well, I'm joined by Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford, as well as BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Hello. Professor Rogers, do you think Britain is planning for a potential intervention? I think it's unlikely but just possible. Um, one of the issues at present which is causing concern in Washington and also in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv is the status of Iraqi chemical weapon stocks and frankly the most likely form of intervention would be to try and safeguard those. That would probably be an American operation although the Israelis may well be involved. It's possible that some other forces including those from Britain would be involved too. The consequences of that kind of uh, intervention are pretty considerable. But I think beyond that at the moment, it is unlikely that Britain is intending to intervene. But the situation is so flexible, you, uh, so uncertain, you can't rule it out. Christopher, what do you think? I think first and foremost, they're talking about contingency planning. Um, the MOD would be daft if it didn't have a contingency plan. The second thing is, if you were going to get involved at all, under whose authority would you get involved? You would need probably a United Nations resolution to do so. When you come to the chemical weapons, which is the important thing, now the Jordanians have all already said that they're of great concern, the Israelis have said so, the Americans have said so, and the British have said so. And therefore, at what stage do you decide you want to move them? Now, the first question you ask is, where are they? You don't just book chemical weapons scattered around you know, the, the country. They're usually in some sort of lock-up, and you know where they are. How would you then destroy them? It doesn't necessarily mean boots on the ground. So are, are you saying, though, that, that the main reason, if there were to be any kind of intervention, would be the chemical weapons to try and secure those? It'll be one of them, and it'll be an important one, but you've got to say who, under whose authority do you do that, or do you? So for, for example, if you're an Israeli or the Americans who are likely to do something without, Ameri without United Nations permission, to say of national, international importance that we do these. But you've got to be careful uh, how you do that if you don't have that resolution. That is the important thing. But at the moment, the only reason to get involved is twofold. One is the United Nations resolution, which therefore you're supporting, or you may even have been speaking, uh, speaking to. And the second thing is it depends entirely what happens on the Turkish border and the involvement with Turkey and whether there, for example, is a demilitarized zone on the, on, on the Turkish border is established. A lot of that will be decided on who actually gathers and holds Aleppo. 
Indeed. Uh, Professor Rogers, I mean, Turkey has announced restrictions at its border crossings with Syria. Syrian refugees will be allowed to enter Turkey, but Turkish citizens are now forbidden from entering Syria. What effect is the civil war having on neighbouring countries? Neighbouring countries, there's been an upsurge of intercommunal um, conflict to an extent in, uh, in Lebanon. Turkey, as I said, is hugely worried about the potential flow of refugees in large numbers. There's an indirect connection with Iraq in that there's more and more evidence that more radical uh, Islamist jihadists are crossing the border from Iraq into uh, Syria. In fact, there's a report in the New York Times this morning that one of the border crossings taken over by the rebels is actually in the hands of a group very allied very closely to the very loose al-Qaeda movement. There is growing evidence that you do have these more radical Islamist element, uh, groups in with the rebel forces in Syria. And that is a, a complication that Washington could, Washington could really do without. But it is a fact of the matter, and it links quite strongly with the idea you have a cohort of young paramilitaries who basically were combat trained against American troops in Iraq in the mid-2000s, and they are now uh, operating elsewhere, including in Syria. Uh, let's talk about the significance of Aleppo. Reported earlier today that a column of tanks was headed to the city. Um, is Aleppo important, Paul Rogers? It certainly is. I mean, Aleppo is the commercial capital of Syria. It's also the largest city. It's actually larger than, larger than Damascus. Uh, traditionally, uh, the Assad regimes had quite a lot of support from what you might call the merchant class in Aleppo as well as Damascus. If it was to be taken by the rebels and held, then it would probably be the most important change as far as the future of the regime is concerned, even more so than the assassinations a week or so ago. Uh, and this, I think, is the reason why the uh, Assad regime will be putting very considerable forces, almost anything at its disposal, in order to hold the city. Can you see, Christopher, a, a situation whereby somewhere like Aleppo might become some kind of safe haven area, that that could be developed as a p possible way of bringing some kind of move towards a solution? Well, probably not Aleppo, and probably not any other any city, because it's very difficult to create uh, a safe haven area which involves a city, because then you get into a different form of uh, fighting, uh, low-intensity operations, etc. But it's interesting, I mean, what, what, what Paul was saying about the merchant class in Aleppo. The merchant class is largely Sunni, and uh, the Assads are not the Alawis, which is a sort of offbeat of, of the Shias. But he, it also reminds us that not everybody says the Assad lot uh, and their followers must go, because you start looking, you say, right, the merchant class, the bourgeoisie, the Christians, the Druze, um, they all have an interest with, with Assad's lot staying, or whoever follows him, uh, sort of staying in within that line of responsibilities. And so I think that there are very many people who have ideals and favours that they've got from the Assad family. But when you break it down, you're looking at something like, who is a Sunni? Who is a merchant class? Um, what is a Christian, the power of the Christians? What are the Druze? What are the Alawis? Do they actually form something rather than the nine main opposition groups and leaders that are scattered, either a few of them in in, 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 in uh, uh, Syria, but most of them places like Turkey, Paris, London, etc. Uh, Professor Rogers, uh, were the Assad regime to fall, uh, w given that backdrop that, that Christopher's just been talking about, what do you think would happen within Syria? I think it's incredibly difficult to say. I'm afraid what one can say is that the idea you're going to get an easy, peaceful transition to some form of democratic governance 
is frankly rather far-fetched. Uh, in some ways, you might even say that in spite of the huge violence we've seen, the huge loss of life, the human suffering, it could actually be worse when the Assad regime goes. This is one of the reasons why, as Chris says, you get a number of these groups who are not Alawi actually uh, provide a degree of support for the regime, or at least a neutral, because they fear what might happen afterwards. Well, today um, the UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon is in Bosnia, visiting the site of the Srebrenica massacre, urging the world to learn the lessons from it, and starting with what he called meaningful action to stop the slaughter in Syria. Christopher, should the UN be doing more? Uh, yes, um, it should be. That's the purpose, as its purpose. But mostly, it is incapable of doing anything. I tell you one thing that is important. Tomorrow, there's a vote in the United Nations uh, on the arms trade treaty. And one of the problems of the arms trade treaty is that it hasn't got the support that it could have done. Now, if there had been an arms trade treaty with universal support, for example, Russia would have been in breach of that treaty for selling uh, weapons. What would that mean the UN might have been able to do in that kind of situation? Well, it, it just, it just, it just right, flies a flag about it. But, I mean, if, if a country says, oh, stuff, you know, I'm not interested in this, uh, I'm going to go my own way, as it happened in the past. But it, it's a reminder that it's okay, for example, to sell AK-47s, rifles, or even ammunition. Britain has actually failed to, uh, to actually support what was initially a British initiative to get this arms trade treaty off, off the ground. And tomorrow they're going to vote on it, and I think it's not going to be much of a treaty. OK, gentlemen, stay with us. Sit rep with Still to come, a new report says teenage recruits are being failed by the army education system. And one day to go, the London Olympics begin tomorrow. This is BFBS. Sit rep. British troops are now openly operating in areas formerly held by an insurgent group in Somalia linked to al-Qaeda. French agency pictures show the troops in the former al-Shabaab militant stronghold well outside the British operating base in the capital Mogadishu. Well, Jerome Starkey is the Times Africa correspondent and joins me now on the line. Apologies if there is a slight delay. Hello, Jerome. Uh, what's the background to all of this? Well, the British government has been very coy about the deployment of British soldiers into Somalia, particularly of potential forces. We understand that advisors who are training the African Union forces first deployed into Somalia in September. Um, we're not sure how long those soldiers stay. There is now a second deployment, fewer than 10 people, we understand, who are based at the African Union uh, operating base, which flanks Mogadishu's uh, airport in the capital of Somalia. Uh, however, what we understand is that this week, two of those soldiers in British uniform and carrying weapons travelled with African Union soldiers to Afkoy and in Lasha Biaha. These are both two towns uh, 10 and 20 miles west of the capital, uh, which were both former Al-Shabaab strongholds. It's already been suspected that British special forces were in Somalia. This information about regular troops, what do you think that they exactly are doing on the ground? Yeah, so from the pictures uh, on the French wire agency, it's unclear what they were doing. Uh, we understand that they're there in it as part of a support team. That the Ministry of Defence would divulge, and they said that they are there performing uh, specific and agreed tasks, tasks that have been agreed with uh, the UN-mandated African Union mission. We understand these conventional forces have been part of a training mission uh, that was based in Uganda. They were training the soldiers... Uh, the African Union forces in Uganda for their deployment. Uh, most of the international forces 
any explanation are from uh, Uganda and Burundi and British forces have been training them. We understand that these soldiers have travelled into Somalia to enhance and supplement that training, but it's not exactly clear what they were doing. And certainly from the photographs, they didn't appear to be doing any training or interacting with locals at one stage. Uh, they appear to be inside a sandbagged base uh, in Afghoy. They appear to be walking through the edge uh, of a refugee camp where internally displaced people, uh, Somalis who've been forced to flee their homes because of the fighting, had set up temporary shelters. All right, uh, Jerome Starkey from The Times. We'll leave it there now just because of the quality of the line. I do apologise for that. That was Jerome Starkey, The Times Africa correspondent. Uh, Christopher Lee, just take us back to basics. Tell us what's going on in Somalia and tell us a bit more about Al-Shabaab. Well, Al-Shabaab is an Islamist organisation. Um, probably for the past 20 years until recent, very, very recently, Somalia has had no efficient government. When there has been government, it's covered a, a very short area, something like... Uh, I know a radius of two miles within the capital even. I mean, sometimes it doesn't control the whole capital. What happened is that the Islamist group got in and started to create some sort of structure of government throughout the country. These are the so-called insurgents and these are the so-called militants. Now, that's all been clean, cleaning up. Bring in the African Union troops... Bring in the African Union politicians and the diplomats, trying to get Somalia back on course. Now, the British Army has been helping in the tra- as a training and advisory team with the AU uh, headquarters, based largely, not wholly, but largely in Uganda. What we're seeing now is British uh, troops, or a small contingent, platoon size, just deploying with some of those African Union guys, and actually saying, well, look, this is what you should be doing. This is how to do it, uh, whatever. Um, they're not there. This is not a sort of an offensive. It's not let's go and root out our uh, uh, Shabab uh, uh, contingents or anything like this. They're not in there to do a firefight. They're there simply to say, right, let's create a presence. We're back to the old sort of principle that once you can get AU troops in there, much better than, say, Americans and the disasters they've had, you're again getting into something else, and that is to support your your belief that you should be giving lots of money, and therefore you creating a society in which you can actually defend. In, indeed. Uh, Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford, and that, that giving lots more money, uh, Britain did announce this year £69 million investment for Somalia every year for three years. Um, the British government must have serious concerns about this country to put that much money in. What are they worried about in terms of the implications if they don't support Somalia? I think it's basically about this old idea of ungoverned space. Uh, as Chris was saying, Somalia has had a huge problem of any kind of central governance over many years. It's not that it isn't functioning. In fact, it functions commercially uh, quite well in spite of the lack of governance because the Somalis in particular are often very good in terms of basic marketing. But essentially, because it is ungoverned space, it can allow groups that are not acceptable to Western countries, including the UK, in. And this is why you've seen this this uh, experience with the Al-Shabaab group. Now, the involvement of British troops there, more regular troops, is a surprise, even though it's small scale. But it shouldn't be too much of a surprise. There is this kind of shadow war that happens in many parts of the world. A very good example is the way you've had the Ansardine Islamist get a considerable influence in Mali over in West Africa. And we know by roundabout means that American and probably British special forces have actually been operating in that country in support of the rather fractured government. So in a sense, this kind of operation involving special forces, and in the case of Somalia now, regular forces, is much less unusual than people tend to reckon. 
All right, Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford, thank you for your time today. A group of which campaigns against the use of child soldiers in armed conflict has criticised the British Army for the standard of education it offers its teenage recruits. Child Soldiers International says 16 and 17-year-olds in the Army aren't getting the skills and qualifications they need for future employment after they leave the forces. But the Ministry of Defence disagrees. BFBS reporter Rosie Layden has more. The Army Foundation College in Harrogate is the first stop for new recruits who are put through a gruelling 44 weeks of Phase 1 training. Child Soldiers International claims the Army doesn't offer school leavers a high enough standard of education, but the Army say 95% of soldiers leave college with Level 2 key skills. Captain Gavin Murphy taught at Harrogate before coming out to work at the Joint Theatre Education Centre in Bastion. There is a learning culture throughout the entire Army and learning never stops. So as soon as they complete phase one training, they'll move on to phase two and uh, learn their trade within uh, the regiments or battalions there. And then phase three training continues when they arrive and then continuation of learning always takes place. So for example, uh, the education center in Camp Bastion, we will continue to provide for their professional and personal development. Lance Corporal Josh Nixon joined the Army at 17 and he feels comfortable his Army education will stand him in good stead for a career on Civvy Street later on. I gained basic qualifications in electrical and electronics and then that, then I undergo my equip, different equipment courses, what courses I want to do, what equipment I want to work on. Just keep picking stuff up, it keeps, keeps going and it'll, it'll look good on your record as well for when you want to get out, very employable. This is CSI's second report on military recruitment in the UK and they say they want to see the complete abolition of child soldiers and an end to the MOD recruiting under 18s. But the MOD has defended its record on education. In a statement, a spokesman said, the armed forces provide challenging and constructive education, training and employment to young people. Historically, 93% of service leavers have found alternative full-time employment within six months. Rosie Layden reporting there. Well, I'm joined by Richard Clark, Director of Child Soldiers International. Uh, thank you for joining us today. You heard there in Rosie's report how some young soldiers have benefited from the education and training opportunities offered by the Army, but you say it's not good enough. What's wrong? I think the crux of it is that um, you know, what employers are looking for, and that's come, come through loud and clear both from the Wolf report uh, that was commissioned by the government and by the DfE's response to that, and indeed in other parts of government strategy on social mobility, such as breaking down barriers, opening doors, what employers are looking for are recognised qualifications and transferable skills. I wouldn't dispute that uh, uh, young recruits in the army get challenging um, uh, training and, and education and that they do uh, learn on the job. Uh, I think the important thing though is do those skills that they acquire, do the qualifications that they acquire uh, you know, match up to the competition that they're going to get from people who have not been in the army and who they will be up against when they get into Civvy Street? Indeed, but having said that, you heard that figure by the MOD about the high proportion of service leavers who get full-time full employment after leaving within six months. I mean, it doesn't seem to be a problem, does it? Well, it doesn't really answer my question. I mean, it's 93% of all service leavers uh, what I'd like to, be, to see would be um, a breakdown of those figures to show what proportion of those who joined at 16 and 17 are still unemployed after six months. I think there's also... The I mean, question... you could always argue that perhaps the army is quite a good place for people who, who might not otherwise have got 
qualifications anyway to train them and give them something to do, earn some money, get a qualification and perhaps also learn a trade which might be of use, whereas they might not have been able to do that in the wider society where unemployment of young people is high. Again, I accept that in part. Uh, I've worked in, in disadvantaged neighbourhoods across England and, and have heard that argument used often. I wouldn't deny that it, it, it does benefit some recruits, uh, but what we have found in, in our work is that uh, as yet there is no clear case uh, that there is a general benefit to all those who, who join at 16 and 17. And I go back to the lack of data, just as the figure of 93% that you quoted isn't disaggregated, isn't broken down to show what benefit or, or not is, is gained by 16 and 17 year olds. The same goes for training and education post phase two. You know, there is simply no data that shows of all the training and education opportunities that, that are on offer within the army, and, and we recognize there are such opportunities, we still don't have a clear sense, and the army hasn't been able to give us a clear sense, of the numbers of 16 and 17 year olds who are benefiting from that. So that's not to say that they're not benefiting though, is it? It's just to say that we don't really know. Well, I mean, if we don't know, then it's very difficult to say that they are benefiting. All we can say is based on, on the, the figures that we've got for, for phase one, for the, for the uh, tuition that they get at Harrogate. I mean, you quoted a figure of 95% uh, getting through level two key skills. Those still don't match up to A star to C GCSEs. I mean, the difficulty is that with more and more children staying on uh, to 18 at school, I mean, almost 100% it will be in a very short time, uh, the army is in direct competition and those who join at 16 and 17 are in direct competition with those who stay on at school. And if they're not getting the qualifications that people who are staying on at school get, they will be at a disadvantage when they leave the army. Now, we know what part of your, your, what you want is to make sure that the government raises the recruitment age within Britain. Um, they're unlikely to change the rules on recruiting under 18s. What do you think should be done to improve training and education then at that level if you're unhappy at the moment? I'll take your question again in, in the sense that, I mean, first, they should review the costs and benefits of recruiting at 16 and 17. Uh, the work that we've done shows that they are paying uh, per, per cohort, per intake, over £80 million pounds a, a time more than if they recruited uh, for standard entry of adults. Uh, therefore, you know, at a time when you know, costs are being shaved for Future Force 2020 and lots of things that are dear to the army, rightly so, are being put in, put in doubt and questioned because of costs, here is an opportunity to save £80 million per intake that is not being grasped. All right. So what we would like is a, a thoroughgoing review. There's never been one. And it's about time there was. All right, Richard Clark, Director of Child Soldiers International, thanks for your time today. There's just one day to go until the 2012 Olympic Games open in London. We've talked long and hard about the security issues surrounding the event, so today, for a change, we thought we'd talk about sport. Sport itself is such an integral part of Force's life, from the famous battlefield football match during the First World War to the annual Army-Navy rugby fixture. Earlier, I spoke to Major General Christopher Elliott, director of the Army Sports Control Board, and asked him why sport is so important to the Forces. Well, it has traditionally been important in military life uh, for the very reasons that, that, of course, it promotes teamwork, courage, uh, and uh, 
and fitness and so on, all of which we require on the battlefield. And so whilst we're not engaged in training or, bat- or, or on operations, all sporting activity is really to be encouraged in, in, in the military uh, and particularly in the army where we, of course, face with a, a heavy amount of operations at the moment. And can you say categorically that soldiers make good sportsmen and vice versa? Oh, in, indeed. I mean, the, the ethos uh, of, of sport is, uh, is uh, to be applauded and, and that is to be applauded in our soldiers. So it teaches them all about teamwork, sportsmanship, discipline, discipline as a team, discipline as an individual and so on. So it works both ways. It's quite interesting because you obviously do have some very good sporting uh, people within the army. What comes first for them? Well, of course, their military career and and the military must come first, and that's a given. But we do support our military personnel, both in terms of grassroots uh, sporting from uh, day to day during the working week and and, and over the weekends, but also our elite sport athletes, of of whom we have a register, uh, and we make sure that they are given the time and the opportunity to reach the highest levels which, of course, is occurring in this Olympics, where we have got, uh, in the army at any rate, uh, eight individuals, I beg your pardon, ten individuals, uh, both as uh, competitors in Olympics, Paralympics, and officials taking part in London this this Olympics. You mentioned some of the skills within sport which complement what you need to be a good soldier. Does sport also have an important role to play in perhaps channeling aggression when a soldier is not on operations, isn't in theatre? Yeah, that is that is absolutely true, uh, and uh, that is the case, for example, in the decompression program that works in Cyprus uh, and has been going for some years now, where we, people coming out of uh, uh, operations in Afghanistan and previously Iraq were provided with the opportunity to get on and do sport and, and decompress from the, the high octane of operations. So it does play that part, A, in decompressing, but also it, it breeds, conversely, in the other case, in uh, the fighting spirit. And do you ever lose good soldiers to the sporting world? Yes, we do, unfortunately. Dame Kelly Holmes being a classic example, and I was involved in her career when I was previously Director of Army Recruiting. Obviously not something you can regret, really. <laughs> not at all, no. <laughs> Quite interesting, though, also, that, that sometimes someone who's been injured in service can then go and discover a, an amazing career as a Paralympian or as, 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 as an injured service personnel turning to sport and excel in that later on. Yes, that, that is absolutely right. And I'm, I'm delighted to say the, the way that the programme has de- developed through Battleback and so the progression from hospital to Headley Court and then through Headley Court and thereafter, the tasters and the testing of our wounded uh, in the Paralympian programme allows those wounded soldiers to have a taste of what is available to them and then excel, go on to excel. And we've got two individuals who are taking part in, in this year's Paralympics. Major General Christopher Elliott speaking to me a little earlier. Well, I'm joined now BFBS Sports Editor John Knighton. Hello, John. Okay. Uh, you know more than most about how sports mad the forces are, don't you? 
well, the calendar is absolutely packed. You know, January to December, it's just uh, non-stop forces sport. And what's remarkable, really, is that these guys and the, the women can actually play their sports in between all the commitments that they have, training and obviously operations. Uh, and some of them, as we know, play to a very, very high standard indeed. Indeed. And, and um, two forces rowers taking part in the Olympics. Anyone else we should watch out yes, for? Yes, I'll be down at Dorney today. I've actually spoken to Peter Reid, who's obviously looking for a second Olympic gold medal. He won a gold in Beijing at four years ago. He's in the fours with Andy Hodgett, Alex Gregory and Tom James. There's also uh, Heather Stanning from the Royal Artillery. She's competing with Helen Glover in the women's pairs. They start on Saturday. But also we've got uh, judo players. We've got Emmanuel Nati, who's actually competing for Ghana, although he's uh, in the Royal Tank Regiment. And uh, also later on uh, in the judo competition, we've got Marine Chris Sherrington from 4-5 Commando. He's competing in the 100-plus kilo competition right at the end of next week. Just, just interestingly, anecdotally, when you, you've met a lot of these people when you meet somebody who's in the forces who's competing in the olympics at that level and then you meet perhaps other high level um, athletes do you notice anything different in the ones that come from the forces or is there just a general ethos that runs through them all well what you notice actually is the people who aren't in the forces the great respect that they have for the people in the forces who are competing i mean in paralympics uh, general elliott mayor mentioned uh, some of the forces competitors in the paralympics i mean derek Darrelagi, amazing man who you know everyone thought he was going to die he's now throwing the discus at the Paralympics uh, for Great Britain uh, amazing man you just meet him and he's just absolutely so interesting because we, talk, uh, we heard earlier a bit about how sport is useful to channel aggression when you're yeah. not in theatre but also can be used as a kind of healing tool almost very much so I mean the Battleback programme absolutely proves that you know go onto the snow slopes during the winter and you see all our Battleback skiers you know out there as well it is it is absolutely uplifting for everybody who's involved with them Christopher Lee, um, any historic moments for you in sporting history within the forces that you'd yeah. like to draw our attention to? 1915, the Battle of Lewes, and the uh, first London Irish rifles in September of that year. They knew when they went over the top that this was going to be the end for a lot of them. In fact, 50,000 uh, soldiers were killed in that battle. Sergeant Edwards, first London Irish, took a football. And as the whistle went to go over the top into the German machine guns, he started kicking the ball. And they kicked it to one guy, then passed it to another. And when one went down, and Ed was the first to go down, they carried on kicking until it was embedded in the German barbed wire. And with a hiss, it was deflated. Um, Ted Turner, hearing about that story, you know, the American TV enterprise, said, um, sport... It's like war, but without the killing. I think that says it all, doesn't it? Christopher, thank you. Jonathan, uh, John Knighton, thank you very much for your time today as well. Uh, my thanks to all our guests and, of course, BFBS defence analyst Christopher. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the subjects we've discussed today. Follow us on Twitter at BFBS SITREP. We're back at the same time next week. Do join us if you can. And thanks for listening today. From me, Kate Jobo, goodbye for now. <laughs> <laughs>